Welcome to this edition of The Graduates here on KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here on UC Berkeley campus. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by herpetologist Philip Skipwith of the McGuire Lab here in the Department of Integrative Biology. Hello, Skip. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. And uh, he's going to tell us about his work with herps. We might as well start there. I mean, tell it. Tell Okay. First, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are today. All right, so I'm a, I'm a third-year graduate student in uh, integrative biology in the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. We like to call it the MVZ. I work on herps, reptiles, and amphibians. And I guess herpetology comes from the Greek word herpeton, which means crawling animal. Crawling so, animal. So okay. it's a. So why do we put reptiles and amphibians in the same group? Why do we call them herps? So I think that's just a way of her back in the day before we had like really good science for people to lump animals that look superficially similar together. So a frog looks a lot like a lizard to some people or a salamander looks a lot like a, frog, um, a lizard to some people and it's easily distinguished from a bird or a mammal or a fish. So you're telling me a frog is not a lizard? No. Can you explain why it's not a lizard? What makes them different? What makes a reptile different from an amphibian? Um, so I guess I should start by saying what groups of organisms are in, in either group. So reptiles include lizards, snakes, crocodiles, um, turtles, and birds, technically. All right. Okay, that's a curveball you threw in there. <laughs> and uh, amphibians includes frogs, salamanders, and a group of things called Sicilians. But... um. Amphibians and reptiles, a major difference being that amphibians really respire through the skin, so they breathe through their skin. They have thin skin, thin moist skin. Most of them do. The, the, the major difference is, is that amphibians, part of their life cycle is tied to, the wa- to water. So they have, most amphibians have external fertilization. Salamanders usually have internal fertilization, but they lack a sac around the embryo called the amnion. And that should be familiar to people because that's what our embryos as mammals are inside of us. We internalize that and we have this thing called the amniotic sac. So you're saying that's where babies come from? Yeah, basically that's where babies are held. But we're not the only animal. Mammals aren't the only animals that have an amnion. So reptiles have them, and that includes birds, but they have it in the shape of an egg. So it's, it's within the egg. There's a sac around the embryo called the amnion, and we've just we've just retained the egg inside of us. And there are lots of reptiles that do that. But that's that's a major difference. Amphibians don't have an amnion. Amniotes do. So okay, going back, you put birds in that group. Can you explain to me why you said technically also so just explain to me what what all those uh, qualifications were for? Okay, so we haven't talked about phylogenetics yet. But Wait, you just said a word I don't know. <laughs> explain yourself. What is phylogenetics, Skip? So phylogenetics is the study of how organisms are related to each other. So back in the day, people used to just look at animals and or organisms. Period, and they would say these things they look similar. They look similar, so therefore they must be related. But file, there was very little rigorous testing going. There was no testable hypotheses. So phylogenetics, what it does is it tries to group organisms based off of similarity that they gained from a common evolutionary ancestor. Right. So both birds and mammals are, have some type of covering on their skin. Birds have feathers, mammals have fur. But we did not inherit that from a common ancestor. Right? Our common ancestor was scaly. So we independently evolved fur, which is a mammal thing, and feathers, which is a bird thing. Same thing with being warm-blooded. So the closest, when I say that birds are technically reptiles, they have a lot of differences between a bird and a, a lizard, right? Like lizards aren't warm-blooded or what we call, what they're really endothermic. Birds endothermic are mammals. But when I say that they're reptiles, it's that the closest living relatives of birds are crocodiles and alligators. Birds are technically dinosaurs, which are also reptiles. 
And they've just gone off and just done some very crazy things that other reptiles have not done, both metabolically and behaviorally. So what I'm taking from that is that you just said there are dinosaurs currently roaming the earth. Yes. Cool. Yeah, you know. Hey, I'm going to drop that at my next uh, children's birthday party I'm hosting. So how did you get interested in herpetology? Now that we know what it is, which is the study of amphibians and reptiles, how did you get interested in herpetology? So it's it's a it's a long story. As a little kid, I really liked I liked really liked going outdoors. Neither of my parents have anything above a high school diploma, but they you know they were very supportive of me and wanted to go outside and get dirty, you know. And I would just go and catch snakes and lizards as a little boy. And um, I think I I think the moment that really changed me is I was in a I was in a college preparation program at high school for inner city use, and um, I, I caught my first snake in this program, and I was like, this is really cool. And before that, I actually really wanted to work with birds and stuff, and I did work with birds for a long time in college, and, and I worked with turtles and reptiles. But I don't think I really started getting, like, actually doing research on reptiles until my master's in my early 20s. So you said catching uh, snakes and lizards. How do you go about I mean, do you just stick your hand out real fast, or what's the technique there? So catching herps is very species-specific. So for a frog, you might be able to sneak up on it and grab it. Salamanders, you can just walk up and, and just pick up off the ground because none of them are fast. But a lot of lizards are very, very wary and are very agile. So sometimes you can grab them. A lot of times, for some things, you have to use what we call a noose, which is like a... It can be a lot of things. It can, be, it can very range from a blade of grass or to like what I use as a, as a collapsible fishing rod with a string attached to it, tied in a slip knot. So it's basically like a lasso, but it's not. We're not swinging this thing in. We're just slip it over their neck and we yank up and we catch them. And they're fine. It doesn't damage them, but that's an easy way because a lot of times you can't get within 20 feet of these things. And if you have a 20-foot stick, you can catch one. And then snakes, we um, usually have to use sticks to pin the head if they're venomous or some, a special kind of snake pole to um, pin the head if they're venomous. But sometimes you can just pick snakes up. And turtles, it varies. You don't have to run them down. Sometimes you have to swim after them. uh, It's usually pretty pretty straightforward. There's a lot of different techniques. Nice. And you said you've also worked with birds in some of your work. Where are some of the places that you've done work, both within the U.S. and outside of the United States? So for my field work and my undergraduate, I worked mostly in New Jersey. But I had um, an opportunity to go to Chile, South America, to work on birds. In my master's, I did reptile work in New Caledonia, and I did some reptile work in Mexico briefly. So New Caledonia is actually a little island northeast of Australia. And for my dissertation, all my field work has been in Australia. So I work in the northern tropics of Australia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM, UC Berkeley and listener-supported radio. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview graduate students about their work here on campus. Today, I'm joined by Philip Skipwith, who's been telling us about herpetology, amphibians, reptiles, and uh, is now going to tell us a little bit about DNA analysis. That's right, right? Yep. Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned phylogenetics earlier, and you described it as trying to understand how things are related to each other. So how do we find out how things are related to each other? What are what sort of things, what parts of the organism tell us that? And also, what are the methods we can use to understand that? Okay. So that's a, that's a very complex question. One piece so, at a time. <laughs> so I guess in terms of trying to figure out what parts of the organism can tell us about what they're related to and how they're related, it's basically the whole organism. Deep down in their history, basically any aspect of an organism can inform us of its evolutionary history. However, the question is how do we how do we view that? Like traditionally, people use morphology, which means the study of shape. All right, so we study the shape of the organism that includes the anatomy, 
um, physiology, sort of morphology and physiology are not the same thing, but you can you can include physiology in that too. But traditionally, particularly in my field, people studied skeletal morphology. So you look at the bones, the shapes of the bones, and it turns out that it doesn't work so well. It doesn't work so well. It's like that for a lot of groups because there's a lot of processes that can lead to similar shapes. Why And why would that happen? Why would shapes end up looking the same even if the animal wasn't related? So it depends on the organism, but you can have you can have the idea that this force called selection would cause things that live in similar environments to look similarly, like a dog and a hyena. Dogs and hyenas are not close related to each other at all. But other than the fact that they are carnivores, they're more close related to each other than they are to, say, humans. But they are not each other's closest relatives. Both of them have long faces and long legs. It's because they, they run to catch their prey. They're not pouncing and stuff. They're, they're running to catch their prey, and they're grabbing them with their mouth. They don't use their paws to wrangle prey like a cat would. So despite that, people always thought that, people thought for a long time that they were related. Turns out hyenas are related to cats, dogs are related to bears. They're not close related in, in the grand scheme of things. So that's that's example of, say, convergent evolution. So I use DNA to get at the underlying relationship. So we try to look at parts of the genome. So inside us, all our DNA is encompassed within this, this all-encompassing thing called the genome. So as mammals, we get half of our genome from our mom and half of our genome from our dad. So we try to look at parts of the genome that we know do something. So there are parts of the genome that, that we don't know what they do or they might potentially not do anything. So we try to look at parts of the genome that do something. And what we do is to figure out between or like organism A and how organism B are related to like organism C, a third organism. What we do is we try to take their DNA. We do a whole bunch of technology to and science to get that DNA out of the organism. And then we basically, the end result is we get letters, right? So there's four letters in our genome, A, G, C, and T. And we're able to visualize this on a computer screen. And what we're trying to do is seeing what parts of the part of the gene that we're looking at are shared between these three organisms, hypothetically. So when you line up this DNA and look at it, how much of it is actually shared? I know they always talk about humans and chimps having, you know, so much of their DNA shared. How much is shared between these organisms? So humans and chimps split roughly about 5 million years ago, which is pretty recent in geologic time. However, a lot of the organisms I study, they split from their closest relatives, you know, as recently or sometimes much, much longer ago. So some of the groups I study, their closest relatives, they might be 15% different than their, their nearest relative, which with, with humans, it's, it's like 2% or something like that from our nearest relative. And, and some of these differences are, are much, much um, greater than that. So some of the groups I work with, their nearest relatives are like 50 million years ago, you know, and they live on the other side of the world. And it really depends. But the, the flip side of that coin is that sometimes we have, you know, so the process of forming species, the word that we call it speciation, is a continuous process. And a lot of times we get groups of organisms where they're still very, very, very similar, still very, very similar, but we can look at them and we cannot tell the difference. And then when we get the DNA, we see some minor differences between the, um, the two groups. And does that make it a different species, those minor differences? So um, defining species is a slippery slope. There's a lot of criteria that we, um, that we put into it, you know. And, and I'm I'm smiling here because I kind of set you up for that one, but yeah. <laughs> but I want to hear how you respond. It's a it's a tough question. So there's a lot of criteria, and you know a lot of authors you know they acknowledge that no one criteria can apply to everything. So one of the criteria that we use in my lab is if we put them in a tree, are all the things that we're calling one species are they related? And when I say a tree, I don't mean like an actual yeah, tree. Yeah, I was going to stop like you. A, like an evolutionary tree, which is what phylogenetic, the end goal of phylogenetics is, is we take these DNA sequences, we line them up to each other, look for shared similarities that are inherited from a common ancestor. And then the end goal is we make this tree. Now imagine like a pedigree for a family. 
That's the way I always try to explain it to my family when I uh, when they're none of which are scientists. So when I um, when I try to explain it to people, I try to say like, imagine a pedigree where you have this uh, your, your relationship to your your your, your relatives, right? The only difference between a phylogeny and a, which is the tree I'm talking about, and a pedigree is that it does not draw ancestor descendant relationships. It draws relationships between, say, like a sister, two sisters, right? So we know that two sisters they must share the same ancestor. They have to by definition. And that's what phylogenetics is all about. We're trying to say between these groups of organisms, where are their most common ancestors and who shares the most recent common ancestor with who? You know, so if I say chimps, gorillas, and humans, a chimp and a human are equally closely related to each other as they are to a gorilla. They share more common ancestors with each other than they do with a gorilla. And then gorillas, chimps, and humans all share more common ancestors with each other than they do with orangutans. That is what I'm talking about. So back to the question about how we distinguish species, there's lots of criteria. So one of the traditional criteria was, can they interbreed? You know, but there's lots of species out there that can interbreed, particularly if you're very closely related. You know, so there are lots of processes that prevent you from interbreeding. So it can be something behavioral. You know, you might look really different from your closely related species. Um, that would be like, okay, I don't recognize you as something I can produce viable offspring with. And and just to, to play botanist advocate here, <laughs> I know that sometimes we lose track of plants, but so pollinators would be an example of that sort of same concept in plants where, you know, maybe a bee can pollinate one type of flower, but, it, you know, that's not going to get the pollen to the next flower, so they can't interbreed that way. So just to keep the plants in the mix. That's true. And it's like that with a lot of sexually reproducing organisms. Now, when you're asexual, it's even a little, it's a little trickier, and it's not my field. So bacteria, the criteria that people use to, to describe species of bacteria, I, like, it's, it doesn't, it's not, it's not the same. And even with plants, it's very, it's very, very complicated with plants because you get a lot of hybrids that are just insane genetically, just, just like things you would not see in an animal. But, like, speaking of animals particularly, you know, that doesn't really hold up, that first definition where you're able to inter- you're not able to interbreed. It doesn't really hold up for a lot of things because there's a lot of hybrids out there that occur in the wild. Another thing that we look at is how regularly are they exchanging genes? You know, are they, if they occur in close contact with each other, say they share like a, you have species A on one side of a river on the north side of the river and on the south side of the river you have species B. And at some point in that river, it dries up and they come into contact. They can interbreed, but do they? That's another that's that's another very important criteria that we use, and we're able to measure that using population genetics. Okay, so now we've got we've got a better understanding of figuring out how things are related to each other, and you know mapping them onto this phylogenetic tree, and what is a species? We know how complicated it is. So if it's so complicated, why why do we want to find out what is, you know which species is which and how they're related? What's the point? Well, part of this is a greater pursuit of knowledge. You know, like. We can't make we can't make assumptions about or not necessarily assumptions make um, make comments about the diversity of life if we know nothing about it and and, and we're, I think we're realizing now and even in Darwin's time I think he realized you know there's a lot out there we just don't understand and we're realizing that now because now we have the tools I mean we didn't have DNA analysis on it at regularly and as easily available as we do now until about ten years ago you know we've been doing DNA analysis for almost thirty years but it was extremely time intensive extremely expensive and now we have the ability to sequence an entire genome. For a few thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars over the course of like two days, it took them. To, it took them. Was it twenty million dollars to sequence the human genome or something like that? And it was. And took it took years to do it. And this was in the nineties, you know. So it's it, it was prohibitively expensive. And now we have the tools to do it. And we're trying to understand 
what the diversity of life is. And I think that in and of itself, if we want to preserve the world and really understand how it is, because we're not the only things here, that's extremely important. And phylogenetics, population genetics plays play a big role in that. You know, So we're discovering new frogs and salamanders every year, every year. And it, it's like the number has gone up. Like from when I was a kid, there was something like 4,000 amphibian species. Now it's in excess of 6,000. I'm not even 30 years old, and this is within my lifetime. And groups that we thought we understood, you know, mammals and birds, were discovering a lot of things that we just didn't understand through the use of phylogenetics and population genetics. The two are, two are intimately intertwined. They're opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, of the same spectrum, but they are both both very, very close related. Great. You're tuned in to KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and I'm joined today by herpetologist Philip Skipwith here on The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here at UC Berkeley campus and around the world. And thanks again for being here, Skip. You've been telling us about DNA and herps, which are both amphibians and reptiles, although you did mention something to me earlier about them not not actually being the closest related to each other? Or? Yes, uh, that is the case. So we've lumped um, amphibians and reptiles in this field of study of herpetology together because they are both, you know, creepy crawly things, you know, it's a traditional thing. But in reality, they are not, amphibians and reptiles are not close related to each other. Reptiles are no more close related to amphibians than we are. So as amniotes, which is what that includes reptiles, including birds and mammals, we, we form a clade, I mean, a group of organisms that are very close related to each other in grand terms of things, that does not include amphibians. So amniotes split from amphibians about 400 million years ago, which is a long time ago. So you're saying humans are more closely related to reptiles than amphibians. Yes, and the same the other way around. Reptiles are more closely related to humans than they are to amphibians. So we have creepy crawly in our past. Yes. <laughs> the earliest mammal-like things were, uh, were pretty scaly. Nice. I, I, you know, on a bad day, I'm pretty scaly. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, well, speaking, you know, I mentioned around the world. I know you've done field work around the world, and and more most recently, you've been doing some work in Australia. What what is it like doing research in another country? I mean, I know Australia's, you know, they speak English, but so the, it varies. And I've had the great fortune of working in uh, reasonably well developed countries. And Australia is by far the most developed country I've worked in. You know, one one of the the things that we have to worry about is is you know people like to protect their natural resources so you know a lot of a lot of the resident people are just like why, why are you here and why are you touching our animals why are you taking our animals because you know we collect these animals so we can do research on we get dna from them and australia australia is pretty good about it you know they're very protective of their animals for a different reason than say um where i've been working in new caledonia where they everybody thought we were just going to go sell our sell our stuff you know, we were just going to collect stuff and to sell it and make money and then not give it to the native people, which was not true. Just for the record, scientists don't make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> we in make, case anyone thought yeah, otherwise. <laughs> we don't make, make a lot of money. So it's, we don't get in. Almost no scientist gets, in, gets into the field because they want to be ballers or anything. But in Australia, they're very protective of their natural resources, mostly because it's very sensitive. It's extremely sensitive. They've done a good job, just like Americans, of destroying their environment early in their history. But unlike of Americans, I think they have a very strong push 
to conserve it, you know, and we're pretty good here compared to a lot of other countries. But, you know, Australia is very much very, very protective about they're afraid people are going to export them. They don't want people and more importantly, they don't want people bringing things in that could damage their environment. They have problems with cats and all sorts of non-native things. You know, they just we've heard those stories. Yeah. Yeah. The bunnies and the. Yeah, the rabbits, the foxes, cane toads, which I saw when I was there. And it, it's it, it's just a very delicate ecosystem because it was so isolated. I mean, Australia's been isolated from the rest of the world, you know, for in excess of 90 million years. It's a long time. You know, they've had no contact with other continents for back to the Mesozoic. And that's why some of the animals are so unique over there. Yeah, that's part of it. So what do you do when you're over there? Is it are you just going around noosing lizards left and right? Or um, do you also do work in museums? Or? So that's 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 um, that's a good question. So I when I'm there this last time, it was a lot of museum work. I was going through looking at their collections, asking curators of museums um, if I could look at their precious lizards and measure them. Um, and we also went out and we collected additional specimens from places for which no one have, has actually collected specimens before. So that's a big part. And it's like that for most researchers. Sometimes it's a little bit more field work than museum work. And did you find anything? Anything extra exciting you can give us like a little uh, juicy tidbit about? or? So we're still waiting for the genetics work on the things that I work on. But we saw some very cool animals. Nothing that's radically new to science. I mean, we found some new genetic types. But if you looked at them, they wouldn't look any different for the most part to, to the untrained eye. To, than anybody else, but we saw lots of extremely cool animals that um that you would just not give us see. an example. Come on, we're sitting on the edge of our seats here. <laughs> so one one of the coolest mammals I got to see when I was in Australia last time was an echidna. So what's that? So people know what a platypus is. Um, this is the closest living relative of a platypus, and these are the only two groups of mammals that um lay eggs. They still lay eggs. So this does evidence that you know mammals come from reptilian-like ancestors, not reptiles, but reptilian-like ancestors. And there's a name for that, right? Um, the name of that that includes platypi or <laughs> platypuses and um, echidnas is they're called monotremes. All other mammals are called therians because we have a placenta, some form of a placenta, and that includes marsupials and everything else. But there are only three monotremes left. Okay, and uh, yeah, so you mentioned museum work, and earlier you said you actually sit in the museum here on UC Berkeley campus, right? The, yes. The Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, the MVZ. What, what's it like being in that sort of museum atmosphere? It's actually very different from my previous experiences because you're surrounded by people that you know are interested in things that are roughly comparable to what you're interested in. Um, it's not like just sitting in a grad student office, you know, where you might have people who do cell biology, animal behavior, work on plants on the same lab. Everybody that works in the MBZ works on vertebrates, right? everything that has a backbone. Um, and it's also very interesting in the sense that our collections are just right there. I just have to walk out my door and we have almost a million specimens and our, our museum is one of the finest museums in the world. And it's just, it's just a, a, like intellectually, it, it's just so enriching. I mean, right next to the door in my office is the world's expert on salamanders. If I have a question about salamanders, I go ask David Wake. And the world's expert on rodents, or at least new world rodents, you know, Jim Patton, he's right down the hall. You know, it's just, it's, I think there are very few places, at least for a graduate student, to have that kind of environment. And you're in the McGuire lab. What what sort of things does the lab do? Does, is it all herps in the McGuire lab? Or yeah, so we all there there are four graduate students and a postdoc right now, and we have a you know we also have Jim, who's our PI, our principal investigator, and we all work on reptiles and amphibians to some extent, and we all do phylogenetics or a little bit of population genetics. Um, we have somebody who does some functional genetics now, and we have a bird person who has infiltrated our lab, but he's also interested in roughly the same thing. He just happens to work on birds. 
And you said you can just walk out your office and look at these museum collections, but you're not just going out there to extract DNA, right? What other sorts of things can you learn from museum collections besides taking samples of DNA? Um, You could learn lots of things about shape. So, you know, you can just look at some of the things that I work on, some of the geckos. They look very similar, but when you look at the DNA, they're like 15% divergent from each other um, if you look at a particular gene. So what I, I can go out and look at them, and if I look closely enough, sometimes you can, if you get a large enough sample sizes, you can look at slight differences in shape, head shape, like the eye is slightly bigger than this one, or this one has an extra scale somewhere, um, or they have, they're slightly bigger in overall size. It's things that you just wouldn't notice. So you need a large sample size for that? For some things. If they're really close related, the larger sample size is better. Some things are just like, you just look at them, and you're like, this is different. You know, this is totally different. I've definitely been in a field before, and I'd be like, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, I was in New Caledonia, and we would catch geckos that were blue sometimes, and I'd be like, this is totally different. And then I got back to the lab, and a couple months later, I had the samples, and I was like, oh, this, this, this totally is different. That's very cool. So just as a final note, what what can students do, both high school or, you know, undergraduate students here in the Bay, what can they do to get involved in herpetology? Uh, maybe not even as research. Well, let's talk about it as research, but also just as personal interest. Uh, you said you like getting dirty and catching lizards. Uh, is that something that anybody can do? Yeah. If you if you have no qualms with spending a little time outside, this to- something that's totally feasible. You know, we live in a few parts of the country where that is an option almost all the time. It's, it's California. The weather's pretty pretty amicable for that. I come from Jersey where that's not an option so much. But, uh, yeah, so for kids that are interested in that sort of thing, just get outdoors. Start flipping over rocks. Go outside. There, there are lots of parks in the East Bay that, that have pretty good herping options. And you can almost always almost always guarantee during the fall and spring to get salamanders. It's, it's, it's really easy to get out there. And in terms of research, if you're a, like a Cal undergrad or even if you're a high school student, contact people in the department, you know, in our, in our respective departments, you know, contact somebody at the MBZ and say, hey, I'm interested in getting in, into research, you know, doing a little field work. Do you need a field tech? And we have lots of people here that are looking for able hands, either in the field or in the lab, and you're almost guaranteed to get some experience with that sort of thing. And then you'd probably be much better at noosing lizards uh, when yeah. you went out. And I guess just as a little point of advice for people going out, I know that there are specific ways you should and should not try and catch these things, especially I know tails are sometimes waving around. You want to grab them, but that's not ideal. No, 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 no grab, ever grab a lizard by the tail. Okay. The words, words to live by here from Skip, never grab a lizard by the tail. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Skip, for joining us here on this episode of The Graduates. Do you have any last minute words about, uh, you know, herpetology or what you do just in general? Huh. No, that was it. Thank no, you for having that was me. It. Yeah, no problem. Uh, uh, show, should we talk about why herps are important? Just to, just really quickly before we wind things down, just, just uh, you know, as the message of the show, can you tell me why you think herps and amphibians and reptiles are important, uh, not just in terms of science, but in terms of the world and the world we live in? Uh, so, you know, herps encompass a very large portion of vertebrate diversity in the world. They are ecologically important for various reasons. You know, and even, you know, a lot of people don't even realize this, but some herps have pretty significant biomedical implications, you know, it's like snakes, a lot of, a lot of this venomous snakes out there. Not only do snakes kill people, that, that that's a well-known fact, but some of the venoms have been demonstrated to have some medical applicants, applications, you know, some of them can be used as a, um, anticoagulants, you know, and we're still learning a lot about these organisms. And it's just, it's just a matter of time before we figure out 
how to apply them. And, and in terms of conservation, you know, there's so many species of amphibians out there, and a lot of them, you know, most people probably have heard about this now. There's, there's massive amphibian dials, and a part of that has to do with this spread of tetrid fungus. Um, even right here in California, you know, we have massive yellow-legged frog die-offs due to this, the, the, this fungus has now made it worldwide. And we're still learning, you know, what's immune, what's not immune. How can we transfer the immunity of the immune species to the particularly susceptible species? You know, and it's a very real possibility that a lot of the species that we have come to take for granted, either as a, a layman or as a, you know, as a researcher, will not be here in the near future. I guess that's just one more reason to get outside and take a look around. Ask me. Well, thanks again, Skip. Uh, again, I've been joined here by third-year integrative biology student Philip Skipwith. He's in the McGuire Lab in the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, and he's been talking to us about herps, that's amphibians and reptiles, and uh, also his work with DNA analysis, phylogenetics, and some of his time in Australia. So thank you again, Skip, so much for joining us here on The Graduates. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Uh, again, my name's Tesla Munson. You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. This has been another episode of The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their research here on UC Berkeley campus. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show. Tune in two weeks from today on May 20th to hear from human geneticist Melinda Yang. Until then, keep your dial stuck on 90.7 FM at KALX.